Escape Pod. 14. August 11, 2005. Today's story, Just a Season, by K.D. Wentworth. Hello, welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely, and I'm starting to feel the itch again. I'm sure some of you will take that very creatively. I'm talking about the writing itch. I'm a fiction writer, too. And I don't think it's boasting to say that I'm a competent one, although my volume is way too low. I've got a few nice anthology sales, and some other short stories slowly drifting around the pro markets. And I have a novel in submission at one of the major New York publishers. It's been in a holding pattern there for nearly a year, and I'm thinking it's about time to start waving some flags about it. Meanwhile, I've been making the agent rounds. By the way, if anyone listening to this is a literary agent interested in a high-action young adult fantasy novel about good versus good, drop me a line. I'd love to talk to you. And uh, please skip ahead about two minutes so you miss the bad stuff I'm about to confess to. You know what they always say. Once a novel's in the mail, that's the day to start working on your next novel. And I did that, with enthusiasm. I got halfway through the first draft of the sequel, and I started developing a science fiction project that's far more ambitious. But that was all in 2004. This year, I wrote one short story, and I've taken some notes for those two novel projects. That's not so good. It's not that I haven't been creative at all. I did a blog fiction project for a few months that I think was some of my most brilliant work. It got about 80 readers. This podcast is a lot more successful than that, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. I think this could be something really major, and I intend to make that happen. But it isn't writing fiction. Another thing they always say is, if you can possibly not write and live a happy life, then don't. It's long, frustrating work that even if you're successful at it pays very little, and the recognition you get for it is fairly insular. Everybody thinks they can be the next Stephen King or J.K. Rowling, but there are plenty of better writers than them making less than subsistence income. There are many better ways to make a living. Almost everything is a better way to make a living. So the only reason to write is if you can't avoid it. I'm actually relatively successful at not writing. For a few months at a time. I can easily absorb myself with games or podcasting or, hell, sometimes my actual day job. Then I start to get more and more distracted and a bit stressed. There's a part of me that's always thinking about the novels in my head. It carries on writing them, even if I'm not actually putting any of it to the keyboard. When that part of my headspace starts to get too large, it shrinks the rest of it. And eventually my wife tells me that I need to get back to writing before it drives her insane. So I do. I'm at that point again now. I haven't written anything solid in a while, and I need to. I need to do it so I can stay happy about the other things that are consuming my time. My family, escape pod, the return of actual good television. If I feel that's all taking away from my writing, I'll start to enjoy it less and less. So, starting tomorrow, I'm making time for 500 words a day. I need to do that for me, and I think you'll be glad I did too. Oh, and by the way, this intro? 819 words. So I'm good for today, anyway. Moving on to somebody else's fine words. Today's story is Tis the Season by K.D. Wentworth, and it's also about the stress that happens when people get deprived of the things they need. It's part of our Christmas in August extravaganza. Actually, it's the only part. Ms. Wentworth has sold more than 60 short stories and has seven novels to her credit, the most recent of which is Course of Empire with Eric Flint. 
She was a winner of the Writers of the Future contest, and in 2000, she became a judge for the contest. She teaches elementary school in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is far more heroic, in my opinion, than anything most SF protagonists achieve. Tis the Season was first published by the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in December of 1997. Our narrator this week is Dr. Jonathan Sullivan. When he sent me this recording, he apologized for having too much fun with it, a position I found incomprehensible. It's definitely a colorful reading, and I hope you'll have fun with it too. So, bow your heads and give thanks. It's story time. Tis the Season by K.D. Wentworth Cruising the God Beat, I've seen it all. The past to snatchings, the so-called mere moments of silence some closet Lutheran announcer tries to sneak in before a basketball game, the nasty tricks that can be played on the unwary with a Bible voice. It always starts with a harmless flirtation, just a weak moment of wondering, what if it's all true? Then your average Joe smuggles home a bit of holly or a missile, maybe lights a candle in some illicit roadside prayer house, and that naive first step down the road to perdition becomes a long slide that never ends. I can stop any time I want, they say. I don't really believe any of it. <laughs> I admit, like so many others, I dabbled in this stuff when I was too young and stupid to know any better. But there comes a time when you have to face the world as it really is. The boys in Washington can legislate against this stuff all they want, but we'll never be free of it until we stamp out that spineless craving for absolution and the other world. It was Christmas Eve, and that nasty, strung-out feeling of anticipation clotted the air like a cheap deodorizer. I hate Christmas the most. All that insincere, pious yap about peace on earth, goodwill towards men. <laughs> I was cruising down the expressway, on my way back from dismantling an illegal manger scene someone had erected at the river pot, keeping an eye out for graffiti, you know, where will you spend eternity, or Buddha lives, that kind of crap, spray-painted on underpasses, right where impressionable schoolchildren could see it. The last rays of the setting sun were painting the highway a faint rose when I spotted a broken-down van with the metal outline of a stylized fish just above the back bumper. The short hairs crawled up the back of my neck. Them fish guys had been some of my waist busts. As I passed the van, I noted several scantily clad young skites peering forlornly under the raised hood. So I slowed down and called into headquarters. I got a live one here. Maroon Chevrolet van, license number I to Harry William 155. It has that fish thing on the bumper and some boxes in the back under a top. Static crackled. Computer says it's clean, the dispatcher said after a moment. But you watch your butt, Al. We've had sporadic reports of caroling over north of Greenwood and most of the units in your area are tied up. Roger, will do. I clicked off with a sigh, then swung my unit across the median and switched on my flashes. The two skirts looked up and their faces broke into relieved smiles. Neither of them wore a coat, 
although the temperature had been steadily dropping all day. The younger of the two, a creamy-skinned brunette with legs that just wouldn't quit, raised her arms over her head and waved at me. Over here, officer! The air was damn cold as I crossed the median, one hand on my gun, just in case they wasn't the innocents they appeared to be. My breath turned to white fog, and I immediately started shivering. What's the problem here, ladies? The brunette pouted. I noticed she had a dimple in her chin. She couldn't have been more than seventeen. The engine died, I think. At least it won't go, and we're not out of gas. She gestured at the raised hood. Would you take a look? My dad's gonna kill me if I don't get home in time to do my algebra homework. I pushed my hat back and fought to keep my teeth from chattering. Sure. Sure thing. I edged along the van as the traffic whizzed past inches away, eyeing the boxes crammed into the back of the van. A bit of gold-fringed white cloth hung out of one. It looked familiar, I thought. Kind of like a fancy tablecloth my mom used to have. Or maybe an altar cloth? I kept my cool as I reached the front of the van. Did you try... I turned back just in time to see this Mondo crucifix descend toward my skull. I ducked, but not fast enough. Then a galaxy of lights, all different colors, exploded behind my eyes. I don't remember reaching the pavement. You didn't hit him hard enough. A teeny female voice complained from far off. Africa, maybe, or Mars. He's still breathing. We want him to breathe, stupid, another female answered. How else is Father Lenny going to baptize him? Alarm seeped through my fogged head. I considered opening my eyes, but I couldn't seem to find them. My mouth tasted like the weed-choked bottom of one of them government-protected wetlands. He could just give him last rites instead. What good would that do? asked the second voice, which had a huskier, more contralto quality. An altar boy is supposed to receive all seven sacraments. Well, at least six, I guess, if he's going to get into heaven. I guess he don't need to get married if he takes holy orders. Holy orders. I tried to protest, but only a groan succeeded in making it past my lips. See, the second voice said triumphantly, he's fine. A small hand tilted my chin from side to side, and bright red rockets exploded at the base of my skull. Welcome back to the land of the living, altar boy. My eyelids popped open. I stared up through a crimson haze at a face surrounded with black over white, either a woman or the biggest damn penguin I ever saw. What? Midnight Mass is in ten minutes. You better look sharp, or Father Lenny's gonna have your ass. You'll be on your knees saying Hail Marys until half past Easter. Now, Sister Prudence, another female voice said, don't scare this poor toy to death, not before he gets himself baptized anyway. She giggled. I struggled up to a sitting position, which was blamed hard. My hands was bound before me with a rosary looped tight enough to cut off the circulation, and my holster was empty. Damned if they wasn't nuns. I should have known better. The fish icon was just a decoy to sucker me in. 
If I'd had any inkling I was dealing with the Pope's crew, I would have hauled my piece out and called for backup, carolers or no carolers. These jokers have got a real deadly sense of organization. They had dumped me in a badly lit warehouse of some sort, crates piled up to the ceiling, and me sitting there with my back propped up against a forklift. The chill from the concrete floor had numbed my legs, and I could still see my breath. There was a hint of communion wine in the air as I tugged at the rosary. The damned beads just bit deeper into my swelling wrists. Sister Prudence patted me on the cheek, then dug a nail file out of her backpack and went to work on her black lacquer nails. Each one featured a different station of the cross. Real hardcore stuff. I began to sweat in earnest. She filed the edges delicately. Now... All you gotta do is follow Father Lenny down the aisle and light the candles when he says. No big deal. You can do that much even with your hands tied. I tried to remember all my training sessions for hostage negotiation, but my throbbing head felt like it had been stuffed with soggy communion wafers. You ain't gonna get away with this, I said. I radio headquarters my 20 before I... You're 20? The other nun asked. She reached up and tucked a bright pink lock of hair under her starched black and white headdress. My location. A twitch began under my right eye. And I called in your tag number, too. They ought to be here in about ten seconds. Oh, that. Sister Prudence dimpled. Sister Charity steals us a new tag every day. Sister Charity, she of the pink hair, winked. Hey. The big guy helps those who help themselves. She shook out a white circle of cloth with a hole cut in the middle. Here, put your head through this. I ducked back out of reach. What is it? It's your surplus, stupid, she said airily. All altar boys wear them. I ain't no goddamn... Well, what do we have here, sisters? A scratchy male voice on the leading edge of maturity and quiet. A sinner in need of some redemption? You betcha, father, the two nuns said in unison. They thrust their hands inside their wide sleeves and inclined their heads to this pimple-faced dude all in black, complete with a high black collar and the biggest crucifix I'd ever seen, resting on his concave chest. He had to be all of fifteen. Sister Prudence grimaced. I know he's pretty ancient, but... Ancient? Sister Charity rolled her heavily outlined blue eyes. He's practically morgue fodder. But, Sister Prudence glared, those freaking Whittier Baptists from over on Archer Street ran Frankie down with their hoist this afternoon. There's not hardly nothing left of them but a black and white smear in the center of the road. She gave me a smoldering look. This joke is the best we could do on short notice. Poor Frankie. The priest, for that is what he had to be, frowned. May the Lord have big-time mercy on his soul. He zipped the sign of the cross in the air, then smiled wide enough I could see his braces, decorated with tiny crosses where the wires intersected. Never mind, sisters. Our lost brother Frankie has gone to a for-sure better place, and this poor bastard looks in sore need of redemption. We'd better do the baptism thing before midnight mass rolls around. They grabbed my arms and hauled me upright. My head began to throb again. The warehouse wavered, and my stomach wasn't sure what action it wanted to take. I swallowed hard. 
Now wait just a goddamn minute. I jerked out of their hands and stood there wobbling on my own. Kidnapping is a felony. You three turkeys are looking at ten to twenty. Jeez, sounds like we're in need of a vow of silence. Father Lenny whipped out a smudged handkerchief. I staggered backwards toward the forklift, prepared to defend myself. But Sister Prudence slipped up behind and threw a chokehold on my neck that would have done credit to a professional wrestler. There, there, she whispered into my ears, the warehouse spun and darkened. It's for the good of your immortal soul. Someday, you'll think. When I could see again, the handkerchief was bald and stuffed into my mouth, and the white surplus was settled over my shoulders. Cool! The pimply priest rubbed his hands together. Now, where did I put that vial of holy water? Worshippers were filing in. Parishioners, I guess they call themselves. Hard-bitten regulars, too, by the look of them. They all wore suits and hats and ties, even St. Christopher medals, the whole nine yards. I counted at least five more nuns and two priests, both of the latter younger than Father Lenny. They gave me a nervous glance, then seated themselves on crates lined up before the cloth-covered altar with an air of expectancy. Father Lenny slapped first one set of pockets, then another, apparently finding them all empty. Jeez, I hate it when my mom goes through my pockets. Sister Prudence whispered, You want to borrow mine? He scowled. Like, how do I know it's the real stuff? She reached inside her robe and pulled out what looked like a bottle of Perrier. Hey, I only buy from Harvey the Saint down on Boulder Avenue. He has visions and everything. Despite the chill, a drop of sweat trickled down my temple as he held the bottle up to the light, then screwed the cap off and sniffed. I edged back towards the forklift, thinking maybe I'd find a sharp edge somewhere to cut the rosary beads, then hoof it out into the night and lose myself. I didn't want to wind up dead just because I couldn't muster the appropriate expression of religious ecstasy on my face. More people streamed in from a door somewhere over on the left. I couldn't see it for the crates piled up almost to the ceiling. These new parishioners brushed past me, and I noticed they was dressed differently, all in polyester warm-up suits of a white so bright it half-blinded me, and carrying monster-sized Bibles under their arms. I guess this stuff is okay. Father Lenny motioned to me. Come here, my son, and kneel. I turned tail and fled. Oh, no, you don't. Sister Chatty tackled me from behind and brought me down, face first, on the concrete floor. I lay there, my nose scraped raw, the wind knocked out of me, trying with all my might to remember how to breathe. Father Lenny stood over me and poured a healthy dollop of holy water on my head. I baptize thee in the name of... That's far enough, Padre. A male voice boomed. Put down the funny H2O. Nobody gets hurt. Father Lenny turned on Sister Prudence. I thought you two posted guards. We did. She looked green. Six of them, not a day under twelve. Jeez, can't you nuns do anything right? He set the bottle down next to my ear and backed away while holy water dripped off my nose onto the concrete. Now, now, don't nobody get nervous. He quavered. It's Christmas, you know. God rest you merry gentlemen and all that crap.
A ruddy-faced guy, pushing sixty, if he was a day, kicked the holy water bottle aside, narrowly missing my ear. He was wearing one of those white warm-up suits and sporting an AK-47. Hallelujah, brethren. Raise those lily-livered hands over your heads and back up against the wall. He gestured with the gun. Rolling his eyes, Father Lenny did as he was told. The two nuns followed, hands raised, and little pinkies elegantly crooked, real refined. The parishioners mumbled and milled about the packing crate sanctuary. I'm Pastor Buck of the 15th Street Methodists, Ruddy Face said, and I want to welcome you all to our service. Our sermon for today is, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Amen. We will now pass amongst the congregation and take up the Christmas offering. He winked at a silver-haired granny who flashed her dentures in a truly chilling barracuda smile, then handed a bronze tray out from under her warm-up jacket and proceeded to shake down the newly formed congregation. I squirmed up into a sitting position, working at the rosary. The cord was just cheap string, and I could feel it beginning to fray. Over at the impromptu offertory, one grizzled-looking fellow shook his head as the tray passed underneath his nose, so the granny flashed him a peek at the knife she was packing, which looked to be about right for disemboweling a whale. He flushed and surrendered his wallet. That's it, brothers and sisters. Pastor Buck's fat face beamed. The Lord loveth a cheerful giver. As the good book says, we must all give until it hurts. The rosary cord parted, and the damn beads clattered across the floor, calling his attention back to me. I jerked the gag loose and stumbled back onto my feet. Stop in the name of the law, I lisped, my mouth dry as the Sahara. Death before excommunication, cried Father Lenny darting forward as Pastor Buck's AK-47 wavered toward me. He snatched up the vial of holy water by the neck and smashed it against the nearest crate, so that he sported the jagged bottle top. The old granny with the offering plate squealed like a stuck pig and whipped out a knife. The congregation scattered like chickens fleeing a pack of rabid wolves. Pastor Buck swung the AK-47 back and depressed the trigger. I hit the floor again both arms over my head as the recoil from the first round sent him stumbling back into the loose rosary beads. He went down like a poleaxe buffalo as bullets stitched neat holes across the ceiling. My heart was pounding like a steam engine struggling up Pike's Peak. Common sense whispered that I should just let them shoot it out, then round up the survivors. But unfortunately, my job description says to save and protect. I hitched across the concrete on my knees and forearms toward the nearest pile of crates, cursing all the way, wishing those idiots who keep lobbying for legalization of religion as a so-called victimless crime could see this mess. Father Lenny and the nuns had mobilized their stunned parishioners into an army of sorts and were now duking it out with gray-headed Methodists in white warm-up suits. The latter were using their oversized Bibles as both shields and bludgeons to middling fair advantage, but Father Lenny and the sisters was laying them out right and left with rhinestone-encrusted crucifixes, obviously the better design of the two-weapon systems. Pastor Buck must have hit his head when he went down, because he was still sprawled on his back, 
out cold as a dead mackerel. Just as I reached the dubious cover of the crates, another volley of bullets ripped across the far wall. The two opposing forces hesitated. I couldn't see the doorway, but I heard a calm male voice say, Now that I have your most excellent attention, can anyone here tell me what is the sound of a one-hand crapping? Shit! I pressed my back against the crates. Not a Zen Buddhist, anything but that. They roamed the city alone rather than groups, but each one of them was crazy as the proverbial bedbug. The two rival gangs dropped their Bibles and their crucifixes, then backed away, dragging their wounded along with them. I heard bare feet slap across the warehouse floor. No answers? My, but you are a dull rot, aren't you? The bemused voice commented. I'll give you a one more chance before I speed you all on your way to Nirvana. When the many are reduced to the one, to what is the one reduced? Despite the gravity of the situation, Father Lenny snickered. Peanut butter? The Zen master came into view. He wore a saffron robe, dropped stylishly off one bare shoulder, and his shaved pate had been polished to the reflectiveness of fine marble. He shook his head gently with an expression of profound regret. I am sorry to say, that answer shows you to be a woeful waste of resources in this world of ever-diminishing supply. He took aim at Father Lenny's head. May you achieve a much higher state of enlightenment in your next incarnation. Father Lenny hit the ground and rolled, his pimply face gone the same pasty gray of the concrete. The luga spat a line of bullets that chipped through the wood. Act without thinking. The Zen master smiled beatifically. Work without effort. Shuri, you understand that much. I heaved to my feet and dragged a hand across my sweating forehead. What happens to the hold when the cheese is gone? He turned in my direction and bowed, his gaze fixed upon my face. Nice, he murmured as he straightened. I thought that no one here had the wit to spy with me. He cocked his shaved head so that the overhead lights danced across its surface. His eyes glittered with amusement. Shall we say, a winner, take all? I nodded toistly, though I doubted, despite my misspent youth, that I could take him in a Zen Cohen duel. It had been a real long time since I had tried my best to forget all of that, but I had no choice but to try, or we were all dead meat. I straightened my shoulders. What is the color of the wind? He smiled. What is your original face? before your mother and the father were born. Ho, ho. My mind went blank. My hands clutched vainly at empty air. What is... Sensing blood, my opponent advanced upon me. Triumph brightened the confident set of his face. Say one word with your mouth shut. I fished in my memory for every day I'd ever spent on a street corner with my begging bowl, the feel of saffron silk on my naked skin bare feet walking the icy pavement in the middle of the winter, all the long-buried sensations I thought I'd put away forever. Every exit is an entry somewhere else. Breathing heavily, I stood my ground. 
Behind him, I saw the hostages creeping out the door. Another koan or two, and then I would be free to deal with this miscreant on my own. For the first time, he was forced to fumble through his own repertoire and no longer looked quite so confident. Over his shoulder, I saw Father Lenny and the nuns drag two of their fallen comrades out the open door. At least half of the Methodists had already made their escape. The Zen master sucked in his breath with a pleased gasp. If you cannot find the truth right away you are, where else do you expect to find it? Solidly back in my court again, I winced and dredged my failing memory for yet another round. When the student... The loud clink of a dropped crucifix broke my train of thought. I began again, hoping to distract my opponent. When the student is... The Zen master's head chimed just in time to see the last of the parishioners and Methodists scamper out the door. Cheat! He spat at me, then dashed outside and took aim. I seized his shoulder and spun him around to meet a solid right-hand punch to the nose. He wilted to the frozen ground and the Lugo went clattering across the parking lot. Father Lenny boosted Sister Charity into the maroon van, then hesitated. You know, I think you got yourself a real serious calling there. Are you sure you don't want to take holy orders? He gave me a big thumbs-up sign, then clambered into the driver's seat and screeched away. There was no sign of the Methodists or my squad car. I sagged back against the corrugated iron of the warehouse and closed my eyes. Man, I told myself, I'm getting too old for this stuff. I gotta get a different assignment. Returning inside, I tied my defeated opponent with strips of altar cloth, then grabbed a handful of stale communion wafers to munch while I searched for a phone. By the time I found my unit, it had been painted with all the verses of old little town of Bethlehem and would be out of service at the division repair shop until the new coat of paint dried. So dispatch stuck me with old Joe Fusco, who's close to retirement and only answers silent alarms these days. I sit in the passenger seat as we speed toward another electronic hiccup with some old dame who can't punch in a password fast enough, and I can't get it out of my mind. What is the sound of one hand clapping? A bead of cold sweat runs down my neck and my hands shake. I knot them together and go over all the stuff I learned in rehab when I came off the streets and churned in my begging bowl. One day at a time, as they say. One day at a time. And that was our story for today. If you meet the Buddha in the road, cuff him and inform him of his rights. I've got another book review for you. This one goes back to a challenge from several weeks back about Stephen King's Dark Tower. There are spoilers in this. If you don't want to hear them, skip ahead a minute and 20 seconds. Hi, this is Casey Camp. I just finished listening to Escape Pod number 7, in which you said, please call and tell me what you thought about the ending to... Uh Book 7 of the Dark Tower series, so here I am to leave my fabulous review of that book. Let me just start off by saying, probably the worst, cheesiest, most cop-out ending to a magnificent series ever. Uh, also, did anyone else notice that 19 just kind of sprung up, but then Stephen King said, oh wait, 
no, I've rewritten all of the first books. Now you have to go back and reread them again with all the special extra notes for any of these things to make sense. Back to the ending. For those of you who haven't finished it, cover your ears. Roland finally goes in the tower. It finally reveals its glorious magnificence. Is that, oh, it's a gallery of his life. And then it's a total piece of shit because then he goes outside of the tower and starts the whole fucking thing over, chasing the man in black. Oh, Stephen King, how original. Yes, oh, it's the journey, not the end. It's how you get there, not where you're going. That is bullshit. That is bullshit, Stephen King. You are full of shit. (laughs) Yes, this is it. I love it. This is what I was hoping for when I asked for book rants. Thanks, Casey. You've made my day. We've had a few technical problems and annoyances this week. I guess that's alright. We coast very smooth for three months, and then everything jumps out at once. For those of you who have gotten duplicate downloads of the last several podcasts, I want to apologize for that. That one is entirely my fault. I was trying to fix a totally separate problem, and one of the stupid things I did was to rebuild the RSS feed and point everything in it from the old URL to the new one, escapepod.info. This, I discovered too late, causes many programs to think that all of the items in the feed are totally new. The URL change needed to happen anyway, but I could have done it more elegantly. Hopefully you just saw the repeats and ignored them. Or, hell, I guess it wouldn't be so bad if you listened to them again. I'm sorry for the weirdness. These stories, no matter how many times you download them, are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. That means they're free. We do, however, pay the authors, so if you're enjoying Escape Pod, I urge you to go to our website, escapepod.info, and click on the PayPal link. I promise that everyone who donates to us will be rewarded with infinite good karma and eternal bliss, effective as soon as I rule the universe. Our music comes to us from Daikaiju, who rule monster movie psycho-surf metal music. Their land is a benevolent one, filled with loyal listeners and tiny moth women. Find them at daikaiju.org. We'll see you all next week. And remember, if at first you don't succeed, skydiving probably isn't for you.